Hey, this is Ilya from the Cinematography Podcast. You're hearing my voice right now instead of the show because we have one brief announcement, and that is we are giving away a brand new Sony A7S 3 camera. Yeah, that's right, the one that's not even yet available. It ships uh, towards the end of this month. Uh, we're giving it away as long with a tripod and a $100 Hot Red Cameras gift card, basically a, a total combined value over $4,000 for one lucky uh, subscriber, listener to the show. But what you have to do is enter via our Instagram account, and you want to go to the Cinepod on Instagram. There's an at symbol in front of that, so it's at the Cinepod. There, there's a link in our bio, which will take you to a page to enter and uh, the different accounts you have to follow for Instagram and the things that you need to do, tagging people, et cetera, et cetera. You do this and voila, you could be a winner. And if you're out of the country or if you're listening somewhere on the other side of the earth and you're thinking, ah, you know what? This, this doesn't apply to me. This is probably only for people in Los Angeles or something. That's not true. It is open worldwide. International uh, shipping rates may apply, but if you can go there and this is before September 29th, 2020, you can go ahead and enter and voila, you may be the winner of a brand new camera package from your friends at Hot Red Cameras and uh, a few other of our great friends and collaborators. So uh, go to at the Cinepod on Instagram and uh, click on the link in bio and uh, enter the contest. Good luck. I'm Mandy Walker and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? It's going pandemic going how's it going <laughs> uh it's actually going pretty good uh have been, you left the house yet i've left the house several times oh okay well I, I meant not to like walk around the neighborhood type of left the house did you go somewhere alisha and her son madden and i have been going to franklin canyon all the time which is filled is with where- people not wearing masks Actually, no. Uh, most oh, of the people okay. there are wearing masks. I say the vast majority. And for those of you who are not Angelinos or even Angelinos who have never been to Franklin Canyon, you should go. Uh, if you've ever seen the opening of the Andy Griffith show starring friend of the show, Ron Howard, that is where they shot the fish and hole uh, opening of uh, Andy Griffith and, and Ronnie Howard, who was probably like five years old at the time, walking to a pond. And it looks like North Carolina. And when you're there today, it still kind of looks like North Carolina. But uh, it's a good reason to get out of the house and like see some ducks and turtles and fish and stuff it is an oasis in the middle of hollywood really it is it's like you yeah. kind of go in there and you forget where you are until a plane flies overhead it's uh yeah it's uh, it's pretty it's nice pretty- and you go there i i do this with every kind of location that doesn't quite look like the rest of la when i'm there i'm like what has been filmed here and then you kind of look it up <laughs> on uh wikipedia and it's like everything, everything was filmed here <laughs> every movie that needed a lake they shot it here yep that's pretty accurate it's pretty fun Anyway, today on the show, we have Mandy Walker, the DP of the upcoming Mulan feature, live action Mulan, and uh, she's got an amazing, amazing story. Interestingly, we recorded this interview back at the beginning of COVID. I I recall that we had just found out that Tom Hanks had COVID-19. So this is like maybe very early April, late March that that we recorded this, and she was working on the Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie, which is what Tom Hanks was on, when it was shut down. So 
uh, mm. but she's she's a fascinating person. She's worked with Baz Luhrmann several times. She's got a great story, and we we kind of had an interesting bunch of Australian cinematographers on the show, kind of all in a row. And she's one of the most noteworthy Australian cinematographers. Period. That, that was like four four and a half months ago, and it feels like nine years. It was, it was a simple. <laughs> it was a simpler time. <laughs> Uh, well, it was a simpler I, time. I we we thought we'd be out of this morass by July at the latest, and that even sounded like hyperbole at the time. And here, look at us now. It's September. September. <laughs> well, I am very much myself looking forward to hearing this interview because I was I didn't get to do it at all. I wasn't I wasn't there. But I've heard you and Alana both talk about it, and it sounds uh, fantastic. So uh, I can't wait to get to it. But we have a close focus. No, she oh. was great, and and I mean honestly, like Baz Luhrmann is one of those filmmakers who like when I watch his stuff. It's just a different genre than any other filmmaker. So it's fascinating to talk to someone who's a big part of the process of creating with him because she's worked with him, you know, a bunch of times. Yeah, yeah. And I know you guys talk about that and you also talk about the new Milan. So that's cool. Oh, yeah. We actually already talked about it on the show. They're releasing it on Disney Plus. I don't think they're releasing it in theaters at all. And we've been holding on to this interview because it was supposed to coincide with the release of Milan. And, And now it will. So, uh, <laughs> yes. so hey, Ben, uh, what's our what's our close focus today? What what are we talking about? Well, interestingly, considering that Mulan is not going to be released in theaters, we wanted to talk about the return of theatrical. Uh, most notably, Christopher Nolan's new movie Tenet is is coming out. Very uh, anticipated Christopher Nolan movie, his first movie in a few years, and uh, you know it looks like he's going back into kind of Inception type territory. I'm a big fan of his work. That being said, I will not be going to see anything in a movie theater not even in 70 millimeter well not even in imax which is the only <laughs> way you, you'll be able to see it so it's oh. opening i believe on 210 screens in america it's already opened overseas but in america it's going to be opening on 210 imax screens and my friend christopher lloyd who's a, a really old friend of mine not to be confused with uh you know doc <laughs> <Great> brown scott <laughs> Not Doc, him, Doc Brown. Uh, but my friend Chris Chris Lloyd, who is a uh, he's a film critic in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. and he's someone I've known since high school, and he's an amazing critic. Uh, he actually went and saw it in uh, in an IMAX theater, and he was kind of posting about it on Facebook about how you know, the the theater was like as clean as a hospital operating room, and everybody had masks on, and they were all placed. Uh, an appropriate distance apart from each other and you know one one dude was uh, took his mask off to drink his coke and then left it off and Chris uh, gave him the skunk eye and believe me <laughs> if you know Chris you know that guy can can throw he, some shade he can throw some skunk and, eye <laughs> and uh, I, I just can't help but think that the joy of seeing a movie in the theater is undermined constantly by the mantra that would be going through my head which is this is going to kill me this is going to kill me. This is going to kill me. At, at least with IMAX, you're in a very, very big room. And if most people are like are like you, Ben, and not going to the movies, I don't think there's going to be much of a line. At least at least that yeah, might, yeah. might be safe. You might be uh, safer. Uh, probably. And sec- secondly, you first. You, you know that all of the employees at the theater are absolutely in there with toothbrushes and, and alcohol, cleaning every nook and cranny of that theater yeah, <laughs> between as, shows. As someone who, who worked at several movie theaters growing up, in fact, that's where I met Chris Lloyd. Was He was my boss at a movie theater when I was 16 years old. Uh, I can assure you that the movie theater staff is uh, <laughs> is very concerned about the cleanliness and safety of their theaters. And by very concerned, you mean not at all. <laughs> not in not one bit. So meanwhile, uh, there, there's been kind of the re-rise of uh, of drive-in theaters, mm, that's uh, true. which is which is completely safe. 
and uh, and there's uh, a few chains across the country that are doing uh, the drive-in experience. And just last week, Bill and Ted Face the Music, the third Bill and Ted movie, the f- the first one in 30 years, basically, uh, was released mostly on those and then also on VOD. Now, we cannot find the VOD numbers. No, but I, supposedly they're at the top of the charts of the VOD numbers where you can you can uh, pay VOD it for a 20 buck rental. And uh, which is what I did, by the way. Oh, good, good, good. Uh, so, Co-starring Alex Winter, friend of the show. That's right. Friend of the show, Alex Winter. And uh, possibly best war story I've ever heard. So, <laughs> oh, my God. It's such a good war <laughs> not, story. Not to, not to deep tease that because it's still going to be a little while before it oh, comes out. But. Such a good war story. Anyway. So, yes. So VOD seems to be very healthy, seems to be experiencing, you know, I, I won't say a renaissance because it. I don't think it's, it really ever went away. It's just now getting a resurgence to a, to a level that I don't think has ever been seen before, especially with first run things like Bill and Ted and Mulan. Uh, going straight to it and i have no doubt that tenet is going to have to go there too simultaneously or very close with the theatrical release i wonder if it's in christopher nolan's contract that it gets a certain theatrical window like it gets a certain amount of time theatrical and that, yeah that he, that he's because he is so determined to uh push the limits of the technology of celluloid a film hmm. to sh- you know shooting his movies on IMAX and 70 millimeter primarily like he doesn't even really bring it down to 35 millimeter very much and his last movie Dunkirk that was how they made it and uh I went out of my way to see it in an IMAX theater and I think that was the best way to see that film all right I got I got a uh, business plan proposition pitch for you here tell me if you think this is a viable business it hit me hit me okay your theatrical experience, instead of going to see a movie in a room with 200, 300, 500, 1,000 people, you get to go with 12. And maybe you pick your 12. You pay like okay. uh, a fee, like maybe you're, you're paying for the 12 of you to go see a movie. Maybe it's going to cost, you know, 50 bucks, 80 bucks, 100 bucks, something like that. Mm-hmm. But you get together 12 people and you get your own room, which is like 500 square feet. It's nothing to sneeze at. You got a big screen, you got a 10 foot screen, great sound. But you're paying money and you're having a private theatrical experience and if everyone chipped in 10 12 15 dollars whatever it is you pretty much get get the whole thing and that room is individually you know fogged and cleaned and sterilized at between every use and not only this not only is it like first run theatrical let's see you just want to get there with a bunch of people to go then watch uh you know the finale of whatever the next game of thrones is or mm-hmm. or something like that you can book that room and it's got an internet connection you log into your hbo account and voila now you're getting the theatrical experience with a, with with the people who are inside of your your circle of trust supposedly if you have such a thing and that room is completely cleaned uh, i do not but okay. go on <laughs> <laughs> so so what would it what, what would you think 100 150 dollars if you add those so it's basically like a karaoke room it's like movies. a karaoke room except you know it's a private screening room it's a private screening room experience and you see and how it, big is the screen i'm gonna say 15 feet and you get you know you know fantastic 9.2 atmos surround all that debt jazz and uh, it's really the premium 4k experience it's just you know it's in a smaller it's still depending on where your seat is sit it's going to fill your your full field of vision or so it's essentially like going to like a hollywood screening room like, yeah. like you'd be sent for a press screening exactly of course now sony and a couple other people have these like oled led walls too so it could mm-hmm. actually it could be so bright in there it's blinding it's like there's all this incredible cool new technology and if someone 
was enterprising, then you wouldn't need a projector anymore. You wouldn't have to have a projection of anything. You could just have this 4K video wall in front of you. And if it was a premium experience with, with super great seats and maybe you could order, you know, a takeout delivered to your th- theater or something like that, it comes through a little slot. You grab your food, your drink, whatever. And yeah, I'd want Anim- Alamo Drafthouse level food. I think that would yeah. be optimal. Uh, I mean, would I personally go to that? I doubt it. But also, you know, I have a two-year-old and uh, I you don't get to go You wouldn't have to worry out. about offending people with your two-year-old, though. I'm not bringing my two-year-old to, to a loud-ass movie theater where <laughs> he's going to. He's going to not like it. And he's also going to ruin the experience for everyone else. Well, so maybe you're paying we're by, still going to get it. Maybe you're paying by st- the minute and they give you a remote control and you can even pause it and all that. St- st- I'm still getting a babysitter. I've, <laughs> look, I've tried to get like, I've tried you to, to get him Deadpool to watch Deadpool with your child. <laughs> I went. I Okay. So we took him to see Deadpool 2 when he was like two weeks old. So really all at that point he ever did was eat and sleep. Now he would get up and run around and throw stuff and break break shit and and drive everybody nuts. All right, fine. So, but does it sound like a viable business concept to you? Or? No, no. Actually, I think I think it's not a bad idea. Although when it comes to a movie like Tenet, specifically Tenet, I want to see that on a giant screen. That's the whole point. Mm. Otherwise, it's just as good as watching it on on something like VOD or on television. Uh, with something like Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, not that it's not that it doesn't use the screen well. It looks great, you know. It's it's got a lot going for it, but it you know they didn't shoot it on IMAX. All it's right, not, it's not Lawrence of Arabia. I understand you're not yeah, trying. And to, and, but I feel like that's the kind of movie that would be fun to watch in an environment like that. But but it, think about what you do in in a karaoke room if you were ever in a private karaoke room, which I've I think I've only been in once or twice because I despise karaoke. <laughs> but you're there for the social interaction almost as much as you're. There there to watch somebody sing terribly and i feel like if you were doing that with a movie it would be kind of the same thing although if it was basically just a private screening room and you had food and if you had that level of control you know it basically starts to feel like television almost like just a really big really really premium souped up audio television yeah oh yeah absolutely okay well uh, thank you for the cold water I, I wasn't about to like you know mortgage my house which i don't have a house to mortgage but it, yeah, i'm yeah. not about to go you know start this business or try to go raise some venture capital but i'm just curious because i had heard someone say to me the other day because we have a screening room which is similar to what i just described uh it's like oh you could your rent screening that room out. is awesome i love your screening room oh, well, th- well thanks but you know they were like oh you could rent this out and you people would love to just use it and it's like eh, i didn't didn't, it wasn't intended for that, but I mean, how much, I mean, maybe, maybe we could someday. We'll see. I don't know. I, I still got to do some more work in it. <laughs> well, that close focus took several turns. Okay. Sure. It. Sure did. It, it started off us talking about the return of theatrical and, and look where we bird walked that thing. So did I, I, I'm all for it, man. <laughs> anyway, it's not like we're, uh, we're here trying to do disciplined journalism anyway. So let's move on to our interview with Mandy Walker. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Awesome. So I'm actually in Sherman Oaks, California, and I am with Mandy Walker. Where are you today, Mandy Walker? I'm on the Gold Coast in Australia, in Queensland, the state of Queensland. I think this is probably the furthest. Uh, Actually, we did do an interview with uh, another podcaster in uh, Australia once the wandering dp uh but thank you so much for doing this it's really exciting to have you on here you've got so many amazing and exciting projects uh coming up and also you're kind of topical because you're working on the uh the elvis presley the elvis project with tom hanks and uh, tom hanks and rita wilson just came down with coronavirus 
correct. But we're we're um, waiting for them to get out of uh, isolation, and we're we're moving on, powering ahead. We're not shutting down, which is great. That's great. Well, and you know, in all likelihood, I'm sure that they're getting the best possible care, and uh, you know, I mean, it's more important that they get healthy than anything else. But um, thank you for correct for for doing this with us. You've been on our radar for a long time, and we've been uh, looking forward to to reaching out to you. I think the first movie of yours that I was very aware of was Shattered Glass, which I'm a huge fan of. But you have you have so many. Thank you. The first question I ask everybody, and I'm fascinated to know your answer to this, is a belief that I have with DPs, which is that when you're reading a script, that you either see in composition or you see in lighting, like. When you're imagining what the movie is, you're either imagining like the series of of compositions that you would create, or the way it's the like colors and textures and stuff that you're gonna that you're gonna light. Now you can disagree with the basic premise of my question, but like, is there a way that you see a script when you're reading it initially? Um, it's interesting you say that because the way that I look at a script, I try not to look at it thinking about how I was going to shoot it. I look at it like I'm reading a story, mm-hmm. and so I try and shut off my instinct to sort of start developing ideas but the way that I do work with directors is to start with story and their vision of the story and how they want to tell the story and then I start looking into how I would proceed to create their vision with lighting and composition and and camera moves and all the the, all the parts of my job but I don't go there straight away and I find that it's um it's a process of sitting down with them and and I think one of the things I did with Ted Melfi when I was on Hidden Figures is I got him you know in one of our meetings to write a slug line for each of the scenes and it was about really what was going on in the character's head or what part of the emotional journey we were in and that's a really good cue for me as well because my job you know as well as being an artist and a technician is to help with storytelling so if I can work out a process in my process I work out a way of helping express those moments in many Mm. different ways there's many different ways to skin a cat as they say and so (laughs) I start from there well, so that's interesting what you're talking about with with hidden figures. So were you looking for subtext? Is, is that something that you tend to look for as, as you're uh, working with a director? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, sometimes Ted would just give me one word for a scene, like defeat. Mm-hmm. And how do I interpret that? But it's a really good, uh, for me, because I like to work, you know, on an emotional level and gut feelings about a lot of things uh i can work out how to express defeat in a lot of different ways it's whether how we lens it whether we put the character in focus and everybody else out of focus it's about where we move the camera into the character at a certain time or the mood of the lighting you know so uh, in those ways i can express in the style and the visual language of the film which we've already set up and in in the for the sake of hidden figures it had a lot to do with collaborating with wardrobe and makeup and in wardrobe you know what what the characters are wearing in each scene and what the production design how the production design is for certain locations all that kind of weaves itself into giving ted that one word of defeat you know that that expression of of um how he wants the audience to feel what the character's going through at the time 
Now, when you're saying that you that you kind of work on an emotional level, I always think that it's interesting because obviously a lot of DPs really do. But also at a certain point, you have to take your uh, emotional ideas, your creative ideas and turn it into, you know, kind of like a spreadsheet list of gear that you're going to need or, you know, like we're going to have to have X number of condors or we're going to have to have, you know, these specific lenses. Can you walk me through like how do you go about and, and I'm sure it's different from film to film, but maybe walk me through an example on a specific project of how you take you know kind of that gut level creative reaction to something and then turn it into because you're there to you're there to practically execute the ideas whatever they are so uh walk me through how you do that correct so i think as i was saying i was go through the script with the director a few times Mm. and just talk about story and how they want to express the journey of the character you know how they feel to the audience how they want to express to the audience what's going on in the movie. And then I take from that, I start watching other films that are similar story ideas. And uh, for the sake of Mulan, for instance, I watched a lot of martial arts movies and a lot of Chinese cinema, contemporary Chinese cinema of Zhang Yimou and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and The Last Emperor and films such as that. And then I look at Chinese art to look at composition mm-hmm. And I also went to China three times and um, took a lot of photos. We went to find locations that were, one, you know, locations that we would be shooting for the film practically and also locations that were of ancient um, Toulouse where Mulan's little village is set and also some of the landscape on the Silk Road and an imperial city. And I take a lot of photographs. And um, one of the things that, you know, the director, for instance, what I was talking about before is Nikki Caro had said to me Mulan is the center of this movie I want the audience to feel like they're going on the journey with her so for instance one of the things I gathered from researching is that Chinese architecture is very symmetrical Mm-hmm. And so when you're watching films such as Hero or uh, House of Flying Daggers, a lot of the time the character is in the centre of the movie, in the centre of the frame. So it kind of lent itself to that way of composing our images. And then I went off and um, started looking into lenses and getting lenses made specifically for the feeling of Mulan being the centre of the frame. And that's where oh, wow. I was saying a lot of my gut feeling comes into it is that I go into Panavision, I work with a guy called Dan Sasaki, who's like the lens guru of the film industry in LA. And um, I explain to him that one, this film's epic. So I want it to be epic. And, and what lenses can we look at that's going to express that? And the other is that I, and maybe we need a special lens for her. So whenever we're shooting Mulan, it's a portrait. So mm. he made me a portrait lens that was based on glass from the 1800s, a Petzval lens, where the yes, I know, <laughs> where the um, the focus falls off in a um, more of a an aberration on the edges. We shot spherical, not anamorphic, and. Um, mm the center of the frame remains in focus so that was her lens and it kind of it's a much more elegant way than just dropping off the depth of field so we had that lens for her for specific moments what was the focal and, length um, of that lens if i may ask I'm, I, don't, it, I don't usually get all 80, wonky about them. no it was 85 mil okay cool and and which shot, is kind of a yeah. portrait lens as, as it is yeah <laughs> correct and we shot um 65 mil alexa so we shot oh, wow. and, and widescreen. So another one of the films that I looked at was Lawrence Arabia because we were in desert landscapes and, as I was saying, travelling on the Silk Road. And so it, it kind of lent itself to be shooting widescreen as well. So 
I had some of our lenses made just for landscapes that would give that epic painterly kind of look. And um, so that that's sort of how I worked on this movie, to develop a style and the image that was telling the story that Nikki wanted. So if you're, uh, let me ask you though, if you were aiming for a widescreen film, what was what powered the choice of going with spherical lenses rather than anamorphics? Well, at the time, the anamorphic lenses that we were able to use on that camera, which is a 65mm camera, because we wanted yeah. to shoot the 65 for the the detail and the scale. Because when you shoot 65mm, it's almost like what your eyes see in the width because you're shooting wider. And uh, at that time, there was not many anamorphic lenses made for that camera. There was oh, okay. the hateful eight lenses, but they have a very small range. Whereas now, a few years later, there are dip- that you you are you can shoot a wider range of anamorphic lenses with a different amount of squeeze, not just two times squeeze, but 1.8, 1.6, 1.3. Oh, interesting. 1.2. I didn't know about so that. So they're much more of a, yeah. But I found that our spherical lenses worked for the image we were trying to create you know but we shot we cropped in a 239 format so uh let me ask you too because i think you're the first cinematographer we've talked to who's made a movie that was a remake of one of the uh, disney animation movies but you know like they're sort of going through their animation catalog right now and remaking a lot of them as live action or in the case of lion king obviously not live action but photo reel mm-hmm. how much and, and maybe this isn't something that entered your sphere of uh, information but like how much influence uh, did the walt disney company have and how much were they trying to make your Mulan, your live action Mulan feel like the the animated Mulan or were, were they doing that at all? Well, I think, you know, we were always really aware that that was a very popular film and, and, and really loved by a lot of people. And so we watched it and, and, and took that on board in terms of storytelling. But also Mulan is, um, it's a Chinese fable that is over a thousand years old I think it is like it's really ancient fable and it's a poem it started off as a poem and it's been made quite a few times in China different um, iterations of the story and Mm -hmm. this one I think they they wanted Nikki to bring her sensibility to it and um, they didn't you know they didn't give us a mandate to copy the animation in any way I mean there's a few references to it definitely in the music and some of the scenes but we were making a a different movie a different iteration of the same story so and i i guess you know having since the movie hasn't come out yet and i haven't been able to see it like were there scenes or iconic moments from the animated version of it that they wanted you to make the movie feel just like or look just like almost like storyboards or or were you kind of free to interpret it as you needed to we were pretty much free to interpret it as we needed to because the film that, I mean, also for me to have a direct reference from an animated image is kind of quite arbitrary, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like it, there were scenes that were similar that we paid like an homage to, but because the style of our film is very different, we were, we were on a different visual language. And so for me, it, it's not a direct reference at all. Were there any other of the, you know, the Chinese versions of Mulan that you saw that that you found especially inspirational? Um, I I looked at a couple of them, but no, I did not. And plus, I think that, you know, this is a film that we're making in this time and we wanted it to be an original version. Mm. And also it's Nikki's vision, you know, and, and she has a certain way of storytelling that we were following, you know, and, and collaborating with on her with her. 
And it wasn't just you and the director, but also like the first AD was a woman on, on the show, correct? Yes, that's right. The three women running the set. I mean, it, it was at like unprecedented in a film of that size, never been done before. So we mm-hmm. felt like, you know, there was quite a bit of pressure on us and eyes were on us to be able to achieve this. And you know what, we were so organised and so together. We finished on time. And I remember Nikki saying, you know, we are going to be watched and we're going to do this and we're going to do it really well. We did. Like, we came in on time, on budget. We did not go one day over on such a huge movie with the usual weather issues and horses and stunts and whatever. We finished on the exact day we said we are going to finish. Yeah, it looks, it looks amazing. Which is also pretty un... What I've seen Thank of it, you. it just looks like unbelievably epic. And I think it's unfortunate that it's taken, you know, I mean, like, I feel like that it, I feel like it shouldn't be noteworthy, but, it, but it really is noteworthy that, you know, you, that you have uh, a show, you know, completely run by women, you know, and it's going to be, you know, an enormous Disney hit. Like that's, that's, it's a, uh, it's cool. I'm, I'm glad it, I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's happening. It should have happened 50 years ago. It should have happened a hundred <laughs> years ago, but you know, whatever. <laughs> Exactly. No, I agree. But but I'm really proud of what we did. And, um, you know, the other thing was that we wanted to not, we were just super organised, you know, we had military training for all the soldiers and horses. And we, we, yeah, for months before a lot of the cast, I mean, all the main cast and a lot of the extras had horse riding and sword fighting and martial arts training for months before we started shooting. And and so that military precision could be there. And also we wanted to shoot as much as we could in camera and not to rely on CG replication or, you know, uh, shooting on a big green screen set, for instance. We we did not do that. And we, we had as much set as we possibly could because we didn't shoot a lot in China. We shot most of the film in New Zealand and built sets. So we would build exterior sets and just have like, green screen extension to continue the landscape or whatever but I think one of the important things was uh, for Nikki that the actors felt like they were in the environment and for um, photographically for the audience to feel like we're really in uh, this location. I think that makes such a huge difference too when you see a movie I mean like obviously green screen can just be its own look but um, you know, when you see stuff where there's so much digital trickery going on, I don't know, it, 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 it takes a little bit out of it to me. There's, there's something to, when you look at it and you're like, yeah, a person actually had to like do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. exactly. And, and Yi Fei, who's so amazing and, mm-hmm. um, did many of her stunts herself, you know, we would set it up for a stunt person to be there and she would do it and she's incredibly talented and, um, how scary is that, though? Like when you're like, that's our star flying through the air. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> I know. Well, she was looked after and she had yeah. <laughs> proper training and, and she was doing a lot of rehearsals and, and yeah. a lot of preparation. And and the one great thing for me is, you know, the whole thing about shooting in camera and shooting her for real is that we can focus on her face. And yeah, yeah. Um, so that we I could have like five cameras on her riding her horse and one of them would be like a 2800 mil lens to get right in on her face, um, galloping across the landscape and things like that. Because, you know, a lot of the time if you're shooting, shooting stunt people, you have to avoid their face or do face replacement or whatever. But we, because we had her for real, we could really concentrate on um, having her centre of frame and, and, you know, having all our cameras aimed on her face. Oh, that's pretty sweet. I can't wait to see it. 
I wish I wish mm-hmm. I'd already seen it so so I could discuss it with any <laughs> intelligence. They're setting up like uh, I live right by the Sherman Oaks ArcLight, and they're setting up like uh, already a like a costume design thing that they do in the lobbies at the at, at the theaters here in L.A. Oh, great! I, I'd like to go back if we could and just kind of talk a little bit about you know like where where you come from, how you got your start, and like what was the moment for you when when it first sparked to you that being a cinematographer was something you could pursue. For me, it happened really early that I realised that this is what I wanted to do because my mum had taken me to art galleries when I was Mm -hmm. super young, like two years old, and to the cinema for a really early age. And I really got into photography at high school as well and and developing my own um, negatives and printing black and white photos. And so when I was about 13 or 14, I thought, well, I love the movies and I love photography and art. Why? This just sounds like the perfect job for me. And so I started investigating how to get into the film industry from that age. And I ended up getting a job on a movie set as a runner when I was 18. And I was at university at the time. Actually, I was at university and I got offered this job and I ended up leaving university because straight after that I had a job as an intern as, um, in the camera department. So I started pretty early and, and um, I worked my way up. But it was a passion of mine from, you know, I think really young that I knew what I wanted to do, which I know for a lot of people is not, not normal, but for me that's how it happened. <laughs> Uh, I mean, for a lot of the people we interview, it is it is it is kind of. In, I mean, it's always interesting when you find out that someone like it didn't occur to them until they were in their thirties that they could make movies, and then they became a cinematographer. But it does happen. Yes. So, were you in film school, or did you just drop? Were you just like at the beginning of college and just dropped out, or university? I'm sorry. Yeah, I was doing a arts humanities course, and um, mm-hmm. I was not, I actually applied to film school when I finished high school, and I was seventeen, and they didn't accept me. And one of the reasons they said I was too young because they tended to take postgraduate students. And um, so I didn't get in. But what I did was once I got into the industry, I just worked really hard in calling people and asking if I could come out on their sets. And and then I was Uh. a, a a loader on quite a few films and then a focus puller. Then I was a camera operator. And then I started shooting when I was about 23. And I shot my first feature film at 25. Oh wow! Um, so I, I really, I really taught myself, and that to me it was actually a great way of learning because I was watching from other DPs, being on set with other DPs, and asking questions, and a variety of DPs, you know, that worked in very different ways. And then I would go and try things myself. I was shooting student films and you know small music videos and testing out my ideas, and you know sometimes they were great, sometimes they didn't work. But but yeah, yeah. but it was a way my way of um, of learning. So by the time I did start shooting and had responsibility of being on bigger projects, um, I'd already you know had experience. So it, it really helped. And so uh, I'm I'm assuming, and I don't want to assume, but you were this is all happening in Australia, correct? Yeah, um, I was in Australia up until I shot Shattered Glass, actually. I moved to the US after that. And so yeah. I'd shot about tw- 12 feature films in Australia, and then I moved to the States. I've been there for 16 years now, but I'm back home nice. at the moment. But, um, yeah, I, I stayed over there once once I'd done that film. 
So, uh, like, wh- while you're kind of working your way up, what kinds of stuff is being made in Australia? I, I, I'm uh, loath to admit that probably most of what I know about the Australian film world is uh, from a documentary called Not Quite Hollywood, which is more about, oh, right. Oz, uh, you know, ox, uh, exploitation movies that were made in Australia. But, it, you know, it did lead up to stuff like Mad Max and stuff like that. But, like, what were the what were the kinds of movies that were being made in Australia? Because I think it was a little bit after that documentary takes place, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was. Um, mainly low-budget art house films mm-hmm. and um, occasionally, you know, films like you say, such as uh, high-profile films such as, you know, Crocodile Dundee and Mad Max and things like yeah, that. Yeah. And then I got to, to come back to shoot Australia for Baz Luhrmann. So that it, it, but for me, the films that I started out on were really quite low-budget. So I think the biggest was like $7 million. I made a film called Lantana, which got me the job on Shattered Glass, actually. Yeah. Billy Ray had seen that film. So one thing I have to say is that... I thought that that was a real plus for my development as a cinematographer because I was working in situations where I didn't really have many options in terms of gear or being able to have a lot of camera gear or or whatever. So it made made me quite inventive and especially with lighting. And also one thing I have to say is working in Australia that was a really positive thing was the light here is really harsh because the atmosphere is less than in the northern hemisphere so you're working in very extreme contrast conditions outside and that's how I learned and so by the time I got to do a film like Tracks which I came back to do in the Australian desert and we shot on film actually I could I didn't see any dailies from that film and and so every day I was just super confident that I knew how to work with light and and day exteriors are the hardest thing I think as a cinematographer I remember John Seal said that to me when I was learning he said Mandy day exteriors are the hardest and I kept thinking why you know I would have thought lighting something was the most difficult but shooting a day exterior is the hardest because you don't have control and the weather can change and and you know you're shooting in the middle of the day with the worst light and how do you make it look good and things like that so I think that that was a good training for me so I wanted to talk about how you got your first American film, which was, uh, as I said, the first time uh, I noticed your work was a movie, a Billy Ray movie called Shattered Glass mm-hmm. that came out in, I want to say 2003, somewhere around there. I think it was, yeah. So tell me how you, how you ended up doing that and, and how much of an impact was that on you to move from being you know, a mostly Australian cinematographer to, uh, to working in an American, in an American system? Well, the reason Billy Ray spoke to me about doing Shattered Glass was was because he saw a film that I'd shot in Australia called Lantana, which was a very successful Australian movie. And um, he contacted me and we got together and, you know, spoke about it and decided that we both wanted to work with each other and I loved the script. And so for me, Mm -hmm. I I was ready to come to the States. I'd shot 12 movies in Australia all pretty low budget and um you know up to say i think 14 million dollars was the biggest movie that i did and um so i felt quite confident that i was ready to work overseas and uh you know jumping into the american system is a little different for me on set because of the way the grip and electric work but but i didn't find it um hard it was just uh you know took a week or so just to get used to this the way the system works 
How, how different do they work in Australia versus America? Uh, in Australia, the electrics do all the lighting, which is including setting up um, bounces and gelling and scrims and everything except putting up duvetine or blue screens or green screens is done by the electrics. So there tends to be more people in the electrics department because of that and, and grips mainly are working with camera and camera movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a little different. Now, with Shattered Glass, I, I think Shattered Glass is a wonderfully cinematic movie that takes place in not especially cinematic locations. Like a lot of it's in offices and newsrooms and it's not, you know, you're not at the top of the Empire State Building. Can you talk a little bit about how you found cinematic approaches to uh, constrained spaces that could be considered, you know, again, like they're not flashy looking places and the movie is presented in a fairly naturalistic way. So it's not like trying to it's not it, it's not nothing about the the look is heightened uh but it but it still is extraordinarily cinematic how did you go about approaching that well i think um you're absolutely right and one of the films that we looked at for reference was all the president's men which is shot in similar oh, locations yeah. and a beautifully crafted movie and that was a really good reference for us and i think that um, for sure yeah one of the things is you know I think a lot of misconceptions about cinematography is that my job is to make beautiful pictures. And that's not the case. The case is my job is to help tell the story. And so the way that we looked at the film is in really subtle kind of cues as to what's going on in the mind of the protagonist in this film. um, It was Stephen Glass. And to take the audience on the journey that he was going through. So we would do things like the lighting as the film gets further um, along becomes more contrasting, more dramatic and more, you know, we're putting him in a situation where sometimes he's moving in and out of the light or hiding from the light because people are discovering his secrets. And the other thing was the way that we moved the camera was very subtle. So it, it would be very static in times that you didn't want to, to make a statement, but if we, we were slowly pushing in towards him, it's like you're going into his psyche. And also the, the times that we chose to shoot handheld, where, when his world was kind of going a little topsy-turvy and, and unstable, we made the camera slightly unstable. So we wanted it to be really subtle things that you, you know, because I think sometimes you can get the audience to feel something without them consciously realizing what's going on and there's quite a few different ways of doing that and so when we went through the script we went through um all the ways that we could do this without making a big statement it almost sounds like you're saying that the movie is kind of made from steve glass's point of view in a way is it yeah it's about um giving the audience the experience of that character and to go i mean i always think that the the storytelling of the visual language is taking the audience on an emotional journey with the the, the characters, and um, so that's but how we look. Like, in, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. I'm just excited about <laughs> finding this out. But in a sense, it's like you're taking us, uh, you're giving us empathy for a character, or taking us through the point of view of a character who is lying uh, for the better part of the movie, or or certainly exaggerating and 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 making wild claims that are completely untrue and so i don't know if there's a cinematography technique that you would necessarily employ for this but it's like how did you approach the idea that you were basically taking us on a ride from the point of view of somebody who was lying and presenting all their lies as the truth but there's there's always that sense that they're not 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it was was there something in the in the visual construction of it that, or am I just making a, a complicated mess out of things? No, I think you're right, and I think one of the things about Stephen Glass, I think, is a lot of people really liked him. He was a likable guy. He just had this problem yeah. of lying and you know and cheating, <laughs> cheating his readers and the magazines that he worked with, and he got deeper and deeper into a hole until he got discovered. Um, but you're not meant to hate him. You know, you're meant to go on this journey and, and it's more about understanding him and why he did things yeah. and how he did things and, and what the situation was for him. And even though, you know, he did bad things, what he did was dishonest, but you're not, he's not meant to be a character that you totally dislike. So I think that, that, that um, we always looked at that in the way that we told the story as well. Like in a way, you're almost you almost root for him. Like as an audience member watching that, you kind of want him to get away with it, or you kind of want it to not be all a lie. And then when it when you find it out, it's you know. Uh, and I know that's maybe a little bit more about the writing of the film itself, but I think that there's something interesting in how you go about showing somebody who is not telling the truth. You know, when you have somebody like in a general scene in a movie where where you know it's a dialogue scene or whatever, and a lot of times it's expository and people are giving information. You you're meant to accept and in this movie you're meant to question everything the main character says it's, it's an interesting uh like I'm, I'm interested to know was there a, a way that you went about showing that well I think it was about um how he interacted with the other characters in the film because he's also a really charming guy and that was one of the reasons why he mm-hmm. got away with a lot of it and um, it was definitely in the script I mean Billy is a brilliant writer and every word on the page means something and so it was really clear about the message that he wanted to tell and it was that the one of the reasons this guy got away with all these things because he was he charmed everybody and people believed what he said because they liked him and that was the way Mm -hmm. he operated and so it was about then how we treated other characters and their relationship with him Cool. So uh, to to kind of move from that movie to uh, what is in so many visual ways kind of its polar opposite, you went on shortly after that to shoot uh, Baz Luhrmann's Australia. And you've worked with him a few times, correct? Yeah, I had... um before that film, I had shot uh, a little series of Chanel Number no. 5 short films with Nicole Kidman, and that was the first time we worked together. And we got along really well. I, you know, had such a great time working with him. And so after that, he asked me to do Australia, and I read the script and loved it and went from there. And, and so for me, that was a huge jump because... Um, I think uh, none of the films before even Shattered Glass was not a very big budget. So I was going from, you know, a budget under 20 million to something that was over $100 million. And I think that at at that stage I thought, I remember sitting down and thinking, well, you know, I've done a lot of stuff and it's just, I've been in a lot of different situations. I'm ready to take this on. And it's just the same but bigger. Do you know what I mean? I'm still doing the same things. I'm still photographing and creating images. It's just on a bigger scale. And so, and also we had enough pre-production to work everything out properly. And um, I felt really confident. And one of the things that, that, you know, Baz said to me when he first asked me to do do the movie, he said, just remember one thing, because you're going to be in charge of a lot of people. And he said, I know you're an artist. He said, but... A big part of your job as a cinematographer, as a director of photography, is to be a general. 
and that's oh, about sure. communicating. Especially on something uh, on something of that size, it's just outrageous. Exactly, and it's about uh, being organised, being collaborative, and delegating. And delegating is a really important thing because I was, I had operated on pretty much every film that I'd done before. I think there was only two that I didn't, and um, the on this one we both said, well, I won't be able to be on one of the cameras because we're going to have two, three, sometimes four or five cameras operating at once. And I have to stand with the director and be in charge of what they're doing and adjust what they're doing, be able to watch them all at once. Because sometimes, you know, when we're doing big action sequences or we had specifically one scene in the film where all the Brumbies come in, like there's over 100 Brumbies come in at sunset and we've got Nicole Kidman on the balcony watching them all run in and we did that at sunset you know, in our window of 10 minutes or whatever, with all our cameras rolling, I have to be standing there watching what everybody's doing and making sure they're doing what what I want. And um, from then on, I sort of decided not to operate. And I like, I know a lot of DPs do still operate and they, lo- they love it. And I also love it too, but I feel much more comfortable on a movie standing with the director when we've got a lot of different cameras going at once and be able to orchestrate that with them and to think really quickly and to be watching what one camera's doing and if they're not doing what we want on the next take, get them to adjust. Whereas I found that if I was on one of the cameras, I'd be running back and trying to see what everyone else had been doing and then run back to my camera and organise, you know, what something had come into shot or whatever. So that's the way I like to operate and I learned how to do that on, on that big film. And do you find it, uh, and I ask this question of a lot of DPs who work, who, who don't operate all their own stuff or who have had a journey such as yours where they started operating and then stopped and, you know, moved back because their, their projects got so large. Is it hard for you to, to hand the keys off to a, a separate operator or do you find that like their creativity kind of gives, you know, your, your shots and your lighting, uh, like a thing that you didn't expect sometimes? I think, um, I've made it. I've tried to uh, work with the same people a lot so that we have a relationship and Mm -hmm. they understand the way that I talk to them or the way that I give instructions or the visual language of the movie. I, I, I like to work with people like that that also collaborate. So I listen to what they have to say. And like you say, sometimes people will bring, um, something to the movie that you didn't expect. And what I do also is I try and involve them in pre-production. So I'll get them in and show them all our references, let them talk to the director and, you know, get a, a little run through by the director about the film and how they see the movie. And, and then I'll talk to them technically about how I want them to work and how I want us to work on set and how I want my team to be. Mm-hmm. And so it's about that's about communication. And I think that, that it's really important that you have that Relationships. So I don't run around just yelling at everybody or anything like that. I, I make sure that of people course. are heard and that we're all on the same page. And so, for instance, on Mulan, there was one of our camera operators that we always used to give the long lens shots to. And by the time we got to, you know, week two of um, shooting the big battle sequence in the South Island, Nikki and I would send him off in a in a golf cart halfway up the mountain with the 2,800mm <laughs> lens and an 800mm lens and just explain and draw a little few little stick figure frames and say, okay, off you go and find this. And, and we were so confident at that stage that this person could do that. So it, that, it's about that. It's about... Oh, wait, what were, what were those focal lengths again? 2,800mm. 
What? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I know. I had that <laughs> lens built and adapted for 65mm by Dan Sasaki. So, yeah, it's a super long lens. You can go a mile away and be on a mid-shot of somebody. And <laughs> Oh, man. And the, one of the reasons we did it was because we could put it behind one army and then you would see the other army in the background quite close up and it would it just created the tension between the two of them made it even closer so we used it for things like that or the um horses the Ruran horses when they start coming towards camera you can run a shot where they can go 100 feet and virtually not change the size in frame so wow. it's a way of oh so that actually like saves you time yeah and, and gets elongated <laughs> shots you know that that um and you can separate people from the background more if you want to or we could bring the mountains in closer to them so there were certain instances where we planned to use that lens but you know one of one of the guys became an expert where we'd send him to these far flung vantage points and <laughs> and we trusted that he'd come back with something you know so it's about that that's amazing. I'd be afraid to put my hand on the uh, like on the tripod just oh. because my pulse would make the shot pan oh. wildly from side to side. Oh, you're right. And, and it's um, it's a huge <laughs> lens. It's like four foot long, and the front element I think is about yeah. ten inches, and oh, and it, oh, it only has three stops: sixteen, twenty-two, and thirty-two. And but by uh-huh. by the end of it, you know, the focus pullers at first were freaking out when they saw it, but yeah. after a while they got used to it and they loved it because it was a challenge. <laughs> for them to be able to pull focus on a lens like that. Keep you on your toes for sure. Absolutely. So I sort of have to ask you, because to me, Baz Luhrmann is kind of his own genre of filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel like, I feel like he is such an original filmmaker and there really isn't anyone who makes films the way that he does. And even like looking at his films, it's hard to even um, understand like the philosophy by which his coverage is coming about. It just seems to, it's almost like, it's almost like you're watching a movie that's paced like a trailer in a, in a way. It's just like so, so creative and different. Mm-hmm. And how was, I mean, uh, it, it actually makes total sense that you met him working on a, a commercial. Mm-hmm. How did you find kind of your feature film cinematography muscles were tested by uh, a filmmaker who is, uh, you know, pretty, ex- I don't want to say extravagant, but maybe that is the right word. You know, he's, he's, uh, he, he does a lot. His films are not, it's not your standard kind of filmmaking. No, and he, um, one great thing about him is he always has the film in his head right from the beginning and especially the visual language. So whenever I start mm-hmm. a project with him, he already has a, a lookbook type of thing that him and Catherine Martin, his wife, have put together. And they've done a lot of research he researches for years visual research on historical and reference or inspiration and so by the time I start with him he pretty much has shown me what the film looks like in his head so I have to then interpret that in and you know I can say well how about we do this or you know these lenses and for instance um, I'm not allowed to talk about the film I'm on now but we this we did did that you know we're in pre-production now and um, putting together things that are basically representing what he showed me. So the same, it was the same on Australia, is that 
he has the film in his head in the visual film and he's like he's very collaborative and he has a great energy on set and involves everybody in what he's doing and he's like a conductor I always say Baz is like a conductor the way that he works on set and he will talk to the boom op and he'll talk to the dolly grip about the feeling of the move and about the emotion of the focus pull and you know that's the way that he communicates on set and it's it's very inspiring that's awesome Mm -hmm. And so how many cameras were you rocking on uh, Australia? When we were um, out on location, we had at least three every day. And then sometimes we'd bring in four or five for certain sequences, such as, you know, the the one I described with the Brumbies running in at, at um, dusk. Mm-hmm. And uh, But on stage, we'd have two to three cameras every day, no matter what we were doing. So let me ask you, too, this is just a question that, that always always kind of perplexes me. Uh, is like when you're shooting with multiple cameras, how much attention are you able to give all of them at the same time? Or are you kind of hoping that like if there's a like, let's say there's a problem with one of the shots that your operator will catch it? Like how much are you able to pay attention to all? You know, if you have five cameras rolling, Mm -hmm. how much can you pay attention to what's happening on five screens at the same time? experience is all I can say is it and, and I can and and um, especially when you're working with a director such as Nikki Caro or Baz they're watching them too and whether you know if there's something that goes on for a long time we'll stop and we'll look back at them all and analyze what they're all doing and sometimes yeah. I always run communication system with my operators so I can actually talk to them from where I am with the director and so you know I can say you know next take can you not pan right so far or you know next take can you change lenses and and so I'm communicating with them constantly in between um, takes but I feel like it's for me it's become easier and easier to work out where to put the cameras and you know uh, Nikki and I got to a point on Milan where, you know, no matter how many cameras we'd have, we'd have a shot for all of them. They weren't in each other's way and they weren't in angles that would compromise the lighting. And it's just, I think it's just experience, just working out and knowing from having done it so many times how to make it work and that they all could have great mm-hmm. shots. And sometimes, you know, like I said, there's, if we didn't have a shot for somebody, if they were in the whole vibe of the, the way we were shooting the film and the visual language of the film, we'd say, well, we don't have a shot from, for you. Can you go off and have a look? And they would come back with something, you know, and we'd like it or not like it, and most of the time we did. And then I feel like if, mm-hmm. if everybody feels like they're part of that, it's when they get enthused and they... Um, they, they feel, I, I like the crew to not feel like they're just being told what to do, that they're part of the process and they're part of the, the collaboration and that we listen to them. And that's why I know that, especially on Mulan, my crew absolutely loved it and all wanted to come with us on wherever we went afterwards, you know, because that they, they were part of the creative process. I definitely want to make sure that we talk as well about Hidden Figures, which mm-hmm. is, you know, just a remarkable film. And and I wanted to know ever since I've ever since I saw the movie, how much did did you guys uh, when you were putting it together? How much were you studying the right stuff or were mm-hmm. you were you saying like, we don't want to we don't want to look at that? Or were you like you have so much amazing archival footage to draw from? Mm-hmm. But but it, that movie feels like you could almost intercut it. You could make a, a an extra long cut with the, the right stuff. And those movies kind of feel like 
it's not the same, but you know what I mean? Like they're, they're telling the same story from two different di- directions, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a, it's a very good observation because that's exactly how we tackled <laughs> it is that um, we always knew we were going to use archival footage in the movie. Mm-hmm. And so we watched films like The Right Stuff and we watched a lot of the original NASA footage. And I actually met Catherine Johnson, which was incredible. And we chatted to her and she was sharp as a tack. And at that point, I think she was 98 years old. And um, Didn't she like literally just pass yeah. away like last week or two weeks ago? Yeah, oh, I think a few weeks Crazy. ago, I know, which is very sad. She was 101, I think. Lovely woman, amazing. And so we shot on film. And one of the reasons was we were integrating a lot of footage, archival footage that was shot on film. And some of it was on 16mm reversal or Kodachrome. And we didn't want to change the look of that footage. We, we made that part of the visual language of the movie. That, that that some of the archival footage would be archival footage, you know, so that it was like you're showing a news mm-hmm. clip or whatever during the film. But we also, you know, when I sat down with Ted in the, one of the very first readings, we talked about how, the, you know, what that character was going through. Another thing was, um, you know, we worked with the production designer and the costume designer and makeup all really closely on every film. I tried to liaise with all of them so that we're all on the same page because you have to have a coherent colour palette that works for the story. For instance, you know, there was one scene where it was about Catherine. She was a shining light at this moment. She was in a meeting and she brought up something that was very integral to part of the the mission that was an answer to something they'd been pondering for a really long time. And in that scene... We had all the guys around her were in white shirts and the costume designer put her in a like an emerald green dress. So she popped out like a little jewel in the centre of the frame <laughs> and a shining light, you know, and it was something that I'd have in the, the you know, back of my mind. And so the way that I lit that scene was, you know, to have the edges fall off or to concentrate the camera on her with the depth of field, even though she was in a big group of guys. So things like that are little cues for me to um, create something that tells that story. I have a question, and I feel like this kind of applies to, you know, probably everything you've done Australia forward, or at least the the bigger projects, is when you're working on the big projects like those that have big budgets, do you find yourself, like, making a creative call six months later that you're, like, scratching your head about why you did it on the day or you're you're stuck with a creative call and you have to change things on the fly you know I I guess my question really is like the the size of the machine that you're that you're operating at that point I've kind of asked this question to a lot of people who shoot superhero movies Mm -hmm. because I feel like you know like these things a lot of a lot gets decided so when you get to the set Mm. what's the creative part for you at that point well I think um one of the important things for me is that I have gone through the script with the director and if I understand what they're trying to say in a scene and I have that in the back of my mind, then I'm kind of, you know, I have a plan, of course, because I always have a plan for every everything that we do. I always have a plan, but sometimes the plan goes awry for some reason, whether it's weather or, you know, the actor decide, you know, when they're rehearsing, the actor's going to not do this they're going to do something completely different but if I have in the back of my mind what we're trying to say I have like this box of tricks to be able to (laughs) express that to an audience that 
sometimes ends up will end up being a gut feeling for me so that if I can't do what exactly what we said the way we're going to execute something then I'll think of another way to do it and if I know what that scene's trying to say or that the director's trying to say at that moment in time or what the character's going through I can think of other ways of doing it and then it becomes an emotional feeling you know what I mean it's like an emotional reaction that turns into a technical answer and um, that again for me it comes from experience and it's just like I know what's going to happen if I drop the depth of field I know what's going to have the feeling it's going to be if I use this lens or this lens and I know what the feeling is going to be if the light goes out at this moment or the light is this color I I always do a lot of tests too in pre-production to um to test my ideas basically and see if they work and see if the director's happy with the the, what because you can talk about stuff but at a point it becomes a situation where you have to actually show them and so we'll talk about the way that you know I an idea that I have or something we've been talking about and then I'll go and physically visually show them on the screen what that is especially more tricky things that we're going to be doing I definitely I test them beforehand and so I feel like I have the film in my head you know if I've got the film in my head when we're going to shooting then I can turn really quickly into and, and think of another idea to represent the same message that's great that's great thank you so much i think that's a great place to uh, end on Mm -hmm. Uh, is there any place that our listeners can find your work online if they're looking for it i think most of the movies i've made are online now and i think even films like lantana is on netflix which is you know a film that i learned a lot on it was again a different film for me because the director didn't want to light anything and so we shot on film and he wanted it to be available light, but but very cognizant to the issues of that, like understood that, uh, okay, we have to find a room that's facing the right way where we're going to get sun all day or a character has to move closer to the window to talk or, you know, or and, and worked with it. But I think there's like about three scenes in that film where we actually had to light because we lost light or we were in a forest at night and we had a big balloon light and used um, car headlights. But what I learned a lot on that movie about how to expose negative because I was sitting, I did not operate on that film. I had an operator so that I could have the iris control and I spent the whole time riding the iris when people walk from one film room to another and that you know I think that what we achieved was really beautiful so it wasn't just available light but it was beautiful in its visuals and that's how I got the job on Shattered Glass and I've never shot another film like that but I'm really glad that I did it and that 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 was um a different way of working and that's that's on uh, Netflix pretty sure it is actually I'll check it out. Yeah, I, I have not seen that one, unfortunately, oh. and I would love to. Oh, it's a really good film. Uh, um, it, <laughs> what you're saying about the process reminds me a little bit of, uh, we had Ellen Curas on uh, once, and she was talking about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes. And how Michelle Gondry uh, did not want to use any lights, and she had to, she had to like, shoot it without lights uh, for a couple, for a day or so, so that he could see what that would look like, and then she came up with the plan of like, well, okay, we'll just double up lamp lights or double up street lights, triple them up and so that we'll use the same source, but we'll just increase how much of it there is. Yeah, that's what we did too, the same thing. Or, or we would just put bigger bulbs in our lamps inside the house and, and put yeah. a couple more lamps in where people were going to be walking. Yeah, I had the same thing. And it, because I think also that is a movie that's really beautiful. And um, Oh my God, so it's yes, not, I love it. It, didn't, it doesn't have to look grungy or gritty if you're not using lights you can have a different type of look that yeah it sounds like we're in a very similar situation 
do you have a, a website that people can check out if they want to if they want to see your work? Oh uh, yeah, I have um, MandyWalkerDP.com. Absolutely, uh, everyone, check that out if you can. And uh, Mandy, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us your time. While I know you're in pre-production, and uh, I, I know your time is short, so we really appreciate it. No problem, Ben. Pleasure. All right, so that was Mandy Walker. Mandy, thank you for coming on board and, and being on the show. And uh, can't wait to see Mulan. I'm really excited. I will be one of the people uh, dropping the whatever thirty bucks to watch it on Disney Plus. I will too. So there's sixty bucks right there. There you go, Disney. <laughs> Winner. <laughs> well, we won't be the only ones, I am sure. And now, short ends. So now it is time for our famed short end segment. Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? <sighs> okay, so I know, big big shocker. It's technology for me, um, Panasonic. Uh, they're introducing a new camera that uh, is really, really interesting for people out there who love incredibly high quality uh, 4k video performance and great still photos at a bargain price essentially they've taken their flagship camera like their head big time bad mama jamma which is actually says on the box bad mama jamma uh, <laughs> of, uh, of mirrorless camera full frame mirrorless camera called an s1h they are the price is going to be about half it's gonna be half price and which instead of $4,000 means $2,000, which is nothing to sneeze at. And they they really only trimmed a couple of fairly minor features. So if you don't need 6K, but basically everything else, uh, this camera is a huge bargain. I actually think that their real competition for this is going to be from Canon. They've got a camera called the R6, which is like the little brother of the R5, which is their top of the line 8K camera and all this stuff. And they've limited the R6. Well, it's the same sort of thing Panasonic is doing. It's going to ship right about the same time as the A7S III too, which is another huge camera. In fact, we're actually going to have a, a newsletter and a chart and all sorts of stuff going out through hot ride cameras, which gives you the quick breakdown of all of these different things. And if you ever decide you want to go check out the Hot Red Cameras uh, YouTube channel, we're actually doing little videos on each one of these individually. But uh, there's so many new players at the you know mirrorless camera p- summertime picnic, I guess I should say. My God, right now, it really is kind of nuts that, right now. Uh, we felt like it'd be a good idea to break it on down and make it uh, simple for anyone to see at a glance all this stuff. We're going to post it on a blog. We're doing a bunch of stuff. We'll put it in the show notes so people can see it once it goes live. But really... Um, the, the dark horse, the thing that no one's talking about is this camera that hasn't been announced yet, but by the time this show goes live, uh, it will be announced, so you'll be able to hear all about it. I'm very excited because I am a big fan, as you know, of Panasonic's cameras. Yeah, they're, 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 they're really cool. They don't sponsor the show, but they make really awesome products, and in fact... It's, no, but they... Yeah. I got to say, Panasonic has been very good to both of us over the years, and uh, they actually one time they're uh, nerds. And this is going back, they're, but they're going back to like <laughs> going back to about two thousand three. There was a short that I wanted to make, and I went to NAB and saw their brand new uh, SDX nine hundred camera at the time, uh, which I would argue is the best standard def camera ever made. No argument for me. And they just let me use one. They they just we had to have it insured, but they just let us use it for the short, and then they were able to use it in their. Uh, in their promos afterwards it was uh pretty amazing yeah they, they, they do great stuff and in fact there's there's not really bad there's not well there is a there is some bad technology i gotta say that it's pretty funny like yeah. after hours in my shop when like all the customers are gone and all the phones are off when uh we're going through stuff and then we we it's not usually stuff that we sell but then we find out about something maybe that we don't sell and we go god this thing's a total piece of garbage it's like complete garbage <laughs> but uh but yeah it, it is interesting because most of the time most of the stuff these days is actually really really good like 
insanely good. I, I like it because it's not a race to the bottom at the moment. It's a, like trying to offer more and more features and more and more quality and charging, you know, none of these cameras are like pocket chains. They all cost a bit, but they're affordable. Let, let's just say. Yeah. And by historical average, everything is super affordable and super high quality. So amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good time to be doing this stuff if we were allowed to be in the same room with each other. So, so Ben, what is your pet obsession this week? What, what's, what's your short end? So this has actually been going on for uh, at least a few weeks. But I don't know. I, you must have seen. There's a, there's a famous 1980s movie called The Beastmaster. Oh, yes. The Beastmaster starring uh, Mark Singer and uh, Tanya Roberts. Oh, yes. It was a popular rental at the video store I worked at once upon a time. Yeah. I, I mean, I have an early, early memory because I'm old of my dad taking me to see the Beastmaster Whoa. in the theater. Whoa. I saw it in the theater. So Don Coscarelli, who is one of the most interesting directors, somebody, somebody whose work I adore. We've had two of his DPs on the show, uh, Chris Komen and Michael Giolakis, uh, both shot for him. Uh, in fact, Michael shot John Dies at the End, which is sadly his most recent film. I want him to make more movies. So he wants to do a proper Blu-ray re-release of The Beastmaster, but they can't find the negative. It has no. gone missing. No. Yeah. And so uh, they set up a website called whereisthebeastmaster.com <laughs> and you can go on it and you can see sort of the uh, the the history of, of the negative where it went it was shot by uh, Academy Award winning DP John Alcott are you kidding me holy shit John Alcott is like a fucking legend that's incredible yes. I, had, I had no idea he yeah, wrote the so, book uh, on like on like film noir I mean that guy is that guy's incredible he's not no slouch yeah and then they kind of have like the natural history of what happened to the negative, and it eventually ended up in Van Nuys, which is not far from me. In fact, my house used to technically be in Van Nuys, and then there was a real estate agent who got it moved to Sherman Oaks, but without me <laughs> you'll, having to. You'll always be in Van Nuys to me. <laughs> I am Van Nuys in my heart. Anyway, it was at a house, at a producer's house, or excuse me, by the right holder's attorney's house Whoa. in Van Nuys, and then they moved and they left it in their garage. The negative to the Beastmaster, and that's the last it was ever seen. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, so, well, I, I'm not going to say so, that Beastmaster is Citizen Kane, but it is not without its charms. It's, you know. it's this, I'm going to say it's the Citizen Kane <laughs> of movies with people who telepathically talk to ferrets. <laughs> You're right in that regard. Yeah, just like yeah. Uh, Shakes the Clown Look, was, was li listed as the, <laughs> as the Citizen Kane of alcoholic clown movies. <laughs> For sure. Well, yeah, I mean, like, this movie has Rip Torn as the bad guy. That's awesome. Holy crap. There's so many things about Beastmaster that are awesome. There's, I think, a tiger that they, it's, uh, that wasn't, that, that they painted a different color, but you can sort of tell. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they turn that into a TV series eventually with, like, uh, yes. Kevin it was, it, Sorbo, well, made, or I know he was Hercules. I want to say they made, I want to say they made three movies and a TV series out of it. Yeah, I mean, it clearly, but, it had legs. It, it it went well it was it was on hbo i didn't need to see it in the theater because as it turns out my parents also had hbo and basically hbo played the Beastmaster wall to wall yeah. all day all night every day particularly on the weekends i think that's where i saw yeah. it although i think i may have seen it out of order seeing Beastmaster 2 first definitely definitely ruins the continuity if you see Beastmaster 2 there was first. a lot of unanswered questions which of course is why they made Beastmaster 3 i gotta say as a kid Beastmaster scared the shit out of me. Oh, and all right. 
and it had like some truly uh, disturbing monster kind of things in it. Like it had these weird creatures that had like a big fleshy wall of arms that would come up and hug you and just digest your whole body and drop your skeleton out at the bottom, the slimy old skeleton after they'd murdered you in, in, in like 15 seconds. As a kid, that was awful. Also, like there's like a witch who has a ring that has an eyeball and the eye looks around like a real eye. I mean, it's 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 fun and weird and uh, definitely a product of its time. So anyway, uh, Don Coscarelli is trying to get those elements so he can restore the movie. And uh, if you go to his website, you can read all about it. And if you have any information at all on Earth that can help him get closer to the original camera negative of Beastmaster, uh, he's reaching out to, uh, to to the world, to the internet, to help him uh, restore the Beastmaster to its purest glory so we can all experience it in its Beastmasterly best. So so really, he's looking for people who have good prints, like uh, good high-quality release prints or answer prints or what, what... No, he's trying to find the negative. He's trying to find the negative. Like, you don't think that because it was left in the garage, it's just, like, gone. I'm doubting that garage was air-conditioned. I'm guessing that that's... Who the hell knows? I mean, I mean, if if there's anything on that negative, you might be able to restore it better than if you had even a really good uh, inter-negative or inter-positive. I don't know. Unrefrigerated for all this time. That might be. And a garage in Van Nuys, which is easily capable of reach, reaching 120 degrees on a hot summer day. I mean, it's... Inside the garage? One, that's 117 once. Oh, yeah, the inside, the inside of the garage. Of the garage. That, like, I know having ha- once had a garage in Van Nuys <laughs> without air conditioning, <laughs> I, can, I can speak from experience. So you walk in there on a day that's 105, inside it's like 120. Well, anyway, I know that we all have bigger priorities in life and that, you know, there's a pandemic afoot and everything is awful. But, you know, it would make the world a little better. The original camera negative of the Beastmaster. You know what? I I really sincerely hope that they find it. This would be a really wonderful story. I'm glad that they went out to the community and said, hey, if anyone out there knows about this, uh, please help us. Please help us out. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, well, Ben, I think that just about does it for another uh, cinematography podcast. Hey, it's uh, time to thank people. Yes. Well, we should start, uh, as always, by thanking our kick-ass and intrepid producer, Alana Cody, who lined up uh, an interview that we're doing tomorrow that uh, I can't I can't words cannot express how excited I am to do this interview. Yeah. Wish fulfillment. One of the one of the biggies, one of the greats, one of the you know contemporary uh, gods of this craft. And uh, one of the people that was on the bucket list when we started doing this. Like, oh, maybe we could get that person. I don't want to say who it is because we still haven't done the interview no, yet. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not counting any chickens till, till they're hatched. Yeah. And uh, hey, let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who's, who's, who's cutting a storm. Ben Katz, who, who uh, yeah, we're not making life easy for Ben Katz. We're, we're trying. We are trying. Uh, and uh, lastly, we need to thank uh, Kay Zalatrakshi, who maybe listened to this episode. Doubtful. Yeah. But maybe. Yeah, that'd be nice. Uh, go to his website, musicbykays.com. Send him a message. Tell him you like his music. Ask him some questions about music. And, uh, you know, hey, uh, I'm going to give Instagram a shout out. Uh, go to Instagram. Follow The Cinepod on, on Instagram. Instagram is uh, a place where all of our shows get wonderful previews put together by our intrepid producer, Alana. And, uh, you know, there's there's some fun stuff in there. And uh, I think we're over a thousand now. I think we had a thousand. So, Whoa, yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty sweet. It's, uh, it's mo- moving on up. 
It just goes to show, do something for six or seven years and then people start to notice. We've done Instagram for not, not even a year, maybe a year now. Uh-huh. I don't know. So, but <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Instagram came, came much, much later, but uh, I, I'm glad, I'm glad to see that uh, there's some people who are, who are following over there, uh, which is great. And, you know, people reach out to us too and say, Hey, you know, put this person on the show or I want to tell you about something. And you get a little ping and reminder of you, if you follow us, just because we pretty much only put out little previews of each episode. Well, cool, Ilya. Thank you very much. And we will see you, the listener. We won't see you. We won't see you. You'll, you'll hear us. You'll hear us. At the, next, <laughs> at the next Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.